This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Yes, that would be me, your faithful radio servant, striving, as he does on a weekly basis, to inform you and entertain you. I expect today's show to be especially difficult because, well, I'm just so damned relaxed. As mentioned on last week's program, I snuck away to go visit the Republic of Costa Rica in Central America. In the past, I found it to be a wonderful place to visit, and it was again this time. Although I couldn't escape some reflections on the fact that, well, it's, it's not the country that it could be. It has been stopped short by internal politics, and unfortunately, over the last century or so, some external politics. We're hoping in the weeks to come to talk about some of what happened to Central America in the last hundred or so years, hopefully with author Rich Cohn, whose book, The Fish That Ate the Whale, provided a lot of my reading material while south of the border. And man, is that a great book. And I'll hopefully have a thing or two to say about it before this hour is up. And a a bit about traveling to Costa Rica. We're big advocates for travel on Radio Parallax. We encourage you to do some visitations outside the U.S. of A. So we'll talk a bit about that, hopefully, in segment three. Before we start the program, as we like to do with On This Date in History, we have to talk about uh, what's going on in space. If somehow you failed to do so already, you must go out, dear listener, and look in the western sky to check out how close Venus and Jupiter are. They make quite a pair after sunset. And when checking them out on uh, Tuesday at their closest approach, I noticed that the moon off in the eastern sky looked blue. I mean, it really looked blue due to this these clouds that are coming in from this uh, monsoon season down in, uh, in the Baja, I guess. And, of course, they're talking about how July will have a real blue moon, which they tend to count as the second moon within a calendar month, which I think is a bunch of nonsense. I'm pretty sure that two full moons in the same month is not what they really meant by the phrase blue moon, although it apparently is obscure. Made a pretty good tune, though. Now, seriously, for some reason, the moon looked blue on Tuesday night. I, I don't really have an explanation. It's something to do with the cloud cover but uh, and perhaps forest fires. My understanding is that forest fire ash up in the stratosphere can make the moon look blue. Whatever it was, it was kind of cool, and I wish it would happen more often. So Mr. Millen encourages all of you pyromaniacs to please do your part to light forest fires. Now, I'm sure Brent, my neighbor of Cal Fire, will want to come and throttle me if I don't point out that's a joke. But uh, what a red-letter week this has been for space probes. The Rosetta space probe is, and lander are sending back some great data from the comet as it uh, approaches the sun. The Dawn space probe orbiting the asteroid-slash-dwarf planet Ceres has reported a large pyramid-shaped mountain, which will probably get a lot of nuts coming out of the woodwork talking about how oh, it's really a pyramid. And most exciting of all, Pluto is now coming into view. 
as the New Horizons spacecraft is swooping down toward its rendezvous on the 14th of July. We've known that Pluto has a very mottled surface, and it's now coming into sharp focus, and its moon, Charon, appears to have a dark spot on its pole, the opposite of the more familiar ice caps seen on Mars and Earth. It probably has something to do with components of the light atmosphere refreezing, but nobody's sure. But we're going to learn a lot in the next couple of weeks. Which time we'll hopefully have the Planetary Society's Emily Lakdawalla come on the program and get us up to speed. But let's do jump into on this date in history. We have been uh, meaning to discuss, however briefly, the fact that last month marked the 800th anniversary of the Magna Carta. But to do that properly, we should probably get an expert on this show to talk about it. I did like some of the entries in Wikipedia, which I read up on, saying things like, The political myth of the Magna Carta and its protection of ancient personal liberties persisted after the glorious revolution of 1688, well into the 19th century. It influenced the early American colonists in the 13 colonies and the formation of the American Constitution in 1787. So in spite of the fact that we celebrate the Magna Carta as the first time uh, rights were laid down uh, uh, that a king would have to honor, it turns out that actually neither side stood behind their commitments of the original Magna Carta, and the charter got annulled by the Pope to boot, so I don't know. But at any rate, let's do a few items actually from this date. Our date in question today is the 2nd of July. And speaking of English history, it was on July 2nd in 1644 that Oliver Cromwell's Roundheads crushed Prince Rupert's Royalists at the Battle of Marston Moor in their first major defeat of the English Civil War, which they went on to lose. On this date in 1881, U.S. President James Garfield was shot in the back by a crazed assassin, Charles Guiteau. This marked the first of two American assassinations actually accomplished by a lone nut. Whereas the first, that of Lincoln, and the last, that of JFK, were the result of conspiracies. It is a darn shame about Garfield. By all accounts, he was a very competent man and stood to be a good president. Charles Guiteau's lawyers tried to use the insanity defense, but it didn't work in this case. Although Guiteau did claim, quite accurately, that he shot Garfield, but his doctors killed him. And if you take the time to read the unfortunate uh, story of how Garfield was treated by the doctors of the era, you'll realize that Guiteau was right. The failure to use antiseptic procedures in probing for the bullet still left in Garfield gave him an infection, and that is what killed him. On this date in 1937, American aviator Amelia Earhart disappeared. That disappearance remains a mystery to this day. On July 2nd in 1947, something crashed to Earth near Roswell, New Mexico. And while it is a matter of historical record that the official first Air Force explanation for what crashed was a flying saucer, the best evidence, shall we say, suggests that it was not. In fact, what pieces of material were, were gathered up by the local populace would indicate that if it was an extraterrestrial craft, it must have been a kite. And finally, it was in July 2nd of 1964 that U.S. President Lyndon Baines Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act into law. The provisions of the Civil Rights Act should have been the law of the land by that point, but uh, various southern states and jurisdictions resisted the amendments to the Constitution, which necessitated more 
aggressive federal action. Our quote of the day comes from humorist and former Radio Parallax guest P.J. O'Rourke. Said P.J., the weirder you're going to behave, the more normal you should look. It works in reverse, too. When I see a kid with three or four rings in his nose, I know there is absolutely nothing extraordinary about that person. Our quote of the day comes from Republican hopeful Senator Lindsey Graham, who said on the campaign stump recently, We tried tall, good-looking, smart, nice, great family. Vote for me. We're not going down that road again. Yeah, doggone it. I've had enough of these people that are good-looking, smart, and nice. And oh yeah, while I was gone in Costa Rica, I guess the Supreme Court uh, did a few things of interest. And I guess that sets up the joke of the day from Jimmy Kimmel, who said, The only difference between gay marriage and straight marriage is no one complains when you leave the toilet seat up. And for our good news item of the week for today's program, we appear to have an embarrassment of riches. I think I'm going to opt for what, for me, is the most startling among the good news items of the week, which is that Pope Francis told the world's 1.2 billion Catholics this week that they have a moral obligation to do what they can to mitigate climate change. In his controversial encyclical, which is an official announcement of church doctrine, the pontiff said there was, quote, a very consistent scientific consensus, unquote, that global warming is caused, quote, above all, by human activity, unquote, and will pose a serious threat to life on Earth. He added that there was a, quote, urgent and compelling, unquote, need for all countries to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, including by, quote, replacing fossil fuels and developing sources of renewable energy, unquote. This is amazing. A pope? saying that we've been corrupted by a throwaway culture of rampant consumerism and addicted to fossil fuel consumption. The Pope is noting that the world's richest countries have sacked the land, leaving the poor to deal with the devastating consequences, including floods, drought, and famine. The Pope saying our earth, our home, is beginning to look more and more like an immense pile of filth. That's pretty amazing. And doggone it, as I say, after coming back on vacation, it's it's hard to get focused on the bad stuff going on. So let's cite some other good news items. President Obama announced this week that after a 54-year hiatus, there's going to be a U.S. embassy again in Havana, Cuba. And there will subsequently be a Cuban embassy in Washington, D.C. It's about time. If there's anything in the world we can look at as being pointless and counterproductive, it would have to be the Cuban embargo at this point and actually for a lot of other points dating back over the decades. All right, some other good news. Sacramento Bee writer Sam McManus got recognized this month by the Society of Features Journalism in its annual Excellence in Features competition. Mr. McManus earned third place for his portfolio of four pieces, which chronicled his stay in a California hostel, a flirtation with Google Glass, an odyssey along Nevada's extraterrestrial highway, and a visit to the annual Cowboys Poetry Slam. Mr. McMillan suspects that the judges had also examined his fine article about radio parallax dating back a few years ago. He, he might have taken first. All right, what else we got in the good news category? Well, the, an early test has now been found for pancreatic cancer, which is welcome news. It's a sneaky cancer. As many as 80% of the cases are identified far too late. Researchers have now identified a protein present in blood at much higher levels when a person has the disease. 
There is hope that this test may become available soon and can be used to screen those people at higher risk, which is those who are obese, over 60, who smoke and have a family history of the disease. Speaking of obesity and more good news, it turns out the FDA has finally stepped up to ban trans fat. <laughs> when I saw this story, I thought, I, 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 they haven't banned it already? And no, they hadn't. It was a voluntary thing that manufacturers were going to take the trans fat out of their food, which they did to a degree. And of course, all the talk about how, well, they really shouldn't ban it. I mean, that's really getting, that's really a nanny state stepping up. I mean, you know, just because it's implicated in diabetes, obesity, heart problems, you hate to overreact. The thing about trans fats are that they are not fats found in nature. If you remember your organic chemistry, dear listener, and we hope you do, you'll recall that unsaturated fats, those that have a lot of double bonds in their carbon chains, melt at a lower temperature. They are liquid at room temperature, whereas saturated fats are solids at room temperature. A fat that is solid has certain desirable characteristics in food. But since the sources of saturated fat tend to make it more expensive, you can just through the miracle of chemistry, take unsaturated fats and through a chemical process, hydrogenate the chains of carbons. Trouble is when you do this through chemistry, the bonds, the double bonds that form these uh, links between the atoms, sometimes change the fat in a way that, as I say, is not found in nature, which means when you go to digest it, well, I'm not even sure what that means. It apparently creates some molecules the body doesn't quite know how to process. Anyway, trans fats, goodbye and good riddance. Speaking of stuff that's bad for you, more good news is the fact that scientists are now getting on the bandwagon and asking people across the globe to lay off sugary drinks. The linking of the consumption of sugary drinks to an estimated 184,000 adult deaths each year, including more than 25,000 Americans, has gotten people's attention. A study released last week by the journal Circulation estimates that one in every hundred deaths from obesity-related diseases is caused by sugary beverages. And boy, does that add up in a hurry. That's another show we've been promising you, a look at sugar with some of the, uh, the local people who are activists about this. We have not done that show yet, but hopefully we'll get it done this summer. Mr. McMillan, make a note of that. All right, our stat of the day, also health-related, is that uh, Hawaii has become the first U.S. state to raise the minimum smoking age. The stat would be the age of 21. The law also bans the sale, purchase, and use of e-cigarettes to those under the new legal age. And for our anecdote for today's program, I'm going to return to that book I mentioned at the top of the hour here, The Fish That Ate the Whale by Rich Cohn. This is going to require a bit of setting up, but I think it may be worth it. The protagonist in this book about the fish that ate the whale is a man you've probably never heard of. His name was Samuel Zamuri. He was known as America's Banana King. As I say, his story is a truly remarkable one, and we hope to speak with author Richard Cohn in some detail about it. But for this anecdote, I would just note that he built a corporation that imported bananas into the United States at the beginning of the 20th century. He wasn't as big as United Fruit, but he was a serious competitor. And at one point, when the banana lands he owned in Honduras came into conflict with the banana lands owned by United Fruit in Guatemala, the U.S. government feared political instability might result and suggested the two companies might want to find a way to reach an accommodation. 
They did this by making Zamuri's company a subsidiary of the larger United Fruit Company. Zamuri was given a boatload of stock and retired. Now, as a Jewish immigrant to the United States with no formal education, although he was a brilliant man, the Boston Brahmins that ran United Fruit looked down on Mr. Zamuri and made a point to pay no attention to his rather sound advice of some things they should do in Central America. He apparently wrote some letters, making some sensible suggestions, and they all went unanswered. Now, Zamuri owned quite a bit of stock in the company, but it wasn't enough to dictate how things should be done. But he went around and talked to a lot of people, which set up a showdown meeting in early 1933, when Zamuri showed up before the board with a bunch of proxy votes in a box. In fact, let me describe from Rich Cohn's book what happened next. The chairman of the board was Daniel Gould Wing, who descended from an old New England family. The president of the First National Bank of Boston, Wing looked askance at an uncredentialed, ill-bred stranger who wandered off the streets. To him, Zamuri was Sam the Banana Man, the fruit jobber from the docks. He already knew what Sam could teach him about the banana business, and that was nothing. Wing welcomed Zamuri to the meeting without looking up, greeting him as was later described, frostily at best. Zamuri waited as the board went through its tasks. When it was finally his turn to speak, he chose each word carefully, explaining his ideas in the thick Russian accent he could never shed. It was the accent of neither the Russian bourgeoisie nor the peasant, neither the voice of Tolstoy nor the voice of Khrushchev. It was the voice of the Jewish pale of settlement, the Yiddish-inflected voice of our grandparents, the fruit peddlers, the street haggler, the Yid. When Zamuri finished, Wing smiled and said, Unfortunately, Mr. Zamuri, I can't understand a word of what you say. The men at the table started to laugh. Zamuri's pupils narrowed to pinpricks. His hands turned to fists. He muttered, then stormed out. Perhaps the board members believed that Zamuri had been chased away, was fleeing back to New Orleans. In truth, he'd only gone to retrieve his bag of proxies. Returning to the boardroom, he slapped him on the table and said, You're fired! Can you understand that, Mr. Chairman? said Rich Cohn. What followed was the sort of gravelly silence in which each board member recalculated his own prospects. Said Zamuri, you gentlemen have been effing up this business long enough. I'm going to straighten it out. Much later, analysts pointed out the flaw in the non-compete clause Zamuri signed at the time of the merger. It barred Zamuri from working for a rival or starting a new fruit company. But it did not foresee the outlandish possibility of Zamuri taking over United Fruit itself. As I say, I'm looking forward to speaking with the author about this interesting man and this most interesting book. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly, shall we? According to The Week magazine, that friend of Radio Parallax, as well as Mr. Bill Maher and the Huffington Post, it was a good week last week for Second Amendment gun nuts with the news that frustrated police in Gulfport, Mississippi, were unable to arrest a man menacing shoppers with a loaded shotgun in a local Walmart because of the state's permissive open carry gun laws. Evidently, terrified employees were huddled in a safe room while the man loaded and racked the 12-gauge shotgun he was carrying, police said 
There was nothing they could do. Police Chief Leonard Papania said, our state law allows for this. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for global warming deniers, who unfortunately overlap considerably with Second Amendment gun nuts. But the fact is, the first five months of this year, 2015, were the hottest since global records began in 1880, according to analyses by both NASA and NOAA. The data put 2015 on track to be the warmest year ever recorded. Of course, the title is currently held by 2014. Anybody see a trend here? And it was an ugly week last week for decoys with the news that London police engaged in a prolonged standoff with a venomous adder, which they were told was lying very still on a patio. The standoff was finally broken when somebody realized the snake was a garden ornament. My snake is very friendly, he wears pink tennis shoes. My snake is very friendly, and he never gets the blues. He can snooze right through the blue. This would be an excellent time to take a short break. Let's do that. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Sleeping snake in his pink tennis shoes. 